Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 186 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and my bulbs are confused. Mm, mine too, my daffs have started coming out. My ranunculus is all over the shop, it doesn't know what it's doing, it's asking for a scarf, maybe a hot water bottle... I did shout at them, go back down, go back down <laughs> into the ground. I tried shouting at them too, and I, I guess like with you, it didn't work. Is there any sort of tips, honey? You're really good at the gardening. No, I mean, it's just what time of year it gets. I mean, mine aren't fully out, obviously, but there are green shoots out. Will they not just die in the cold weather, though? Well, they might. They might. Sad face. Why are they out early? If it's, it's been, been very mild earlier. It's been very yeah. mild. Has it? Not recently, yeah. which is why they're confused. It has been, and they've been like, oh, oh, hello, hello, sunshine. And now they're like, oh, we made a horrible error. How do we reverse <laughs> Like this? the skin on my face. Uh, and yeah. now, no, they've come out like, woo, new life. And I'm there looking like they've just turned up at a party an hour <laughs> early for a party and I'm still hoovering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go, go somewhere else for a while. Exactly that. Anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and this weekend I went sofa shopping, which meant I had a very, very busy weekend of sitting. This is another reason why you're one of my heroes, Hannah. Yeah. How was the sitting? Yeah, it's, 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 it is frustrating when you find a sofa that you really like and you sit on it. You like aesthetically mm. and you sit on it and it's not comfortable. That is really disappointing. And also, like, it is quite shocking what they make. I saw one in brown corduroy and I couldn't believe that's still a thing. Or maybe it's coming back. I don't know. I, I like a bit of corduroy. I don't know whether I'd want it in my living room. But but I also just want a sofa. And they all seem to come with things. Like, oh, this thing pops out and this does this and this goes up on the back. And I'm like, no, I just want to sit on it. I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm on an aeroplane on it. With sofas, because you are five foot and a bit, do you find that you can put your feet on the floor? Is that something you look for? I know, because I always sit with my feet crossed, don't I? We used to have a brown corduroy sofa. Not my feet crossed, my legs crossed. I would sit with my legs crossed. A bra- Sorry, Jen, Jen just some, revealed some incredible information. What era was this though, Jen? Well, I think it must have been in the 80s. I think it must have been when we lived in Charlton still before we came to Essex. So pre-1988. And there's a good reason you don't still have it, I'm guessing. <laughs> I think it was, well, it was brown corduroy, Hannah, and a bit a bit tatty. I think at this point you'd have a spring up your coccyx, wouldn't you? We had a brown velour uh, three-piece suite as a hand-me-down for me nana. Uh, I love that rocking chair. Velour, not velvet. I mean, it very much wasn't velvet. It was, you know, it was flammable, highly flammable. So the ones that say they're velvet... Now, because I want a velvet sofa. Yeah, me too, now. but I walked past them in the shop yesterday because I could see how badly they were covered in stuff just from being in a shop with people sitting on them, <laughs> not with two cats and me and, you know, my mum spilling a cup of tea. Because I'm loose as fuck, I've got two velvet sofas and a velvet bed. And I'm and scared to sit animals. on them. <laughs> oh no, you're not allowed to sit on them. What are you talking about? You can stand and look at them. And they're fine. It's fine. They all rubs off, cleans off. We've got quite a dribbly cat and it all cleans off fine. Well, this has been informative well. for the listeners. 
don't know how to top that really. So uh, I'm Jen Offord and I've just had my first weekend off mumming, a full weekend, mind, in 19 months. Who would have thought that was the most rock and roll thing anyone would say in this intro? (laughs) (laughs) The hangover yesterday was pretty awful, I can't lie. It was really quite bad. But uh, yeah, I'm recovered now, I'm pleased to say. Who says the people who are child-free by choice have all the fun, Hannah? Bulbs, sofas and rock and roll mama down there. Yeah. Later on, I get on the Zoom with our resident psychotherapist, Jane Watson, to talk resolutions. Why we make them, why we break them and whether I can ever talk about self-care without... No, can't do it. Can't do it. Yeah. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I catch up with two-time W Series champion Jamie Chadwick to talk about an amazing year in women's motorsports and what's coming up next. Jen, could I possibly just interrupt at that point? Sure. And, and say something about sport? Yeah, go for it. As our correspondent from the East, I feel like we couldn't possibly not mention that tiny, tiny Cambridge United knocked massive, massive Newcastle United at the FA Cup this weekend. Did they? Yeah. That's amazing. It is. on tiny, tiny Cambridge United. Yep. Charlton Athletic lost to Norwich. So uh, that's about all uh, I could be bothered to look at. Cambridge United, <laughs> who are not only the worst paid footballers in the world, they're also probably the worst paid people in Cambridge. <laughs> that's not <laughs> an actual Cambridge. fact, Jen, but it's pretty, you know what I mean? They were recently, maybe about 10 years ago, they, they held Man United to a draw and somebody found out that the entire team's year's salary didn't come to one week of the worst paid Manchester United players' salary. So that's how bad. Yep, not Newcastle United out. Well done, Cambridge. I'm glad. And in Rated or Dated, we're wondering, how were they fooled by her acting, (laughs) among other things, as we watch 1992's The Hand That Rocks the Cradle? I'm okay. My legs are broken. Uh, but, oh my god! <laughs> I literally, I've literally got that written, written down that. with exclamation marks. <laughs> Wait, no, but the most underwhelming reaction to breaking both of your legs ever. Oh, I'm, I'm excited. But first, questions of taste, questions of responsibility, and the questions of old white men. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're really enjoying this special episode of Banged Up Abroad. <laughs> I have to say it in Alan Partridge for it's Banged Up Abroad, about a Serbian trying to smuggle Czech's notes himself into Australia. <laughs> Guest starring a man who's famously a big fan of Eastern Europeans having freedom of movement, uh, also Czech's notes, Nigel Farage, for fuck's sake. Now, Mickey, question What's the weirdest thing you've ever found in a new place you've moved into? Four years of blocked human sewerage. How about you? (laughs) (laughs) Once, a load of pornography in the loft. Uh But on a much spookier note in the house that I currently live in, when we went up into the loft and turned the light on, there was mirrors all over it and it was really freaky because you could just see yourself and it was like, what the fuck? That's a, that's a horror this? movie. Yeah. Who, what sort of psychopath would do this? Yeah. Would you swap either of those for my cellar flooded with human shit? It's not a euphemism, by the way. Bear that in mind. Keep that image in mind if you uh-huh. can, Mick. <laughs> I can. If, if you can bear to. And spare a thought for Boris Johnson, who apparently found his flat at number 11 Downing Street to be, quote, a bit of a tip when he moved in in 2019. 
human sewage all up the mirrors. <laughs> God, it was like the maze prison in there. The, the previous <laughs> occupant had been former PM Theresa May, well known for her raging lifestyle. She's a raver. Full of wheat, that place was. <laughs> full of it. You know, like when, when we can find like cat litter. Like just, <laughs> that's what it was like with wheat with Theresa May. WhatsApp messages between Johnson and Tory donor Lord Brownlow revealed that the PM had said, quote, I am afraid parts of our flat are still a bit of a tip and I'm keen to allow Lulu Lytle to get on with it. Can I possibly ask her to get in touch with you for approvals? Brownlow, a Tory peer, responded, of course. I wish I'd done a Boris voice now. Of course, get Lulu to call me and we'll get it sorted ASAP. They totally would say ASAP as well and not ASAP. <laughs> Later, Lord Brownlow sent another message adding, I should have said, as the trust isn't set up yet, parenthesis, will be in January, approval is a doddle as it's only me and I know where the pound sign will come from. He totally would have said parenthesis as well. Totally, totally. I'm finding it all very, like, incongruous to see your face and hear that voice. I don't like it. Lulu Lytle ultimately did the redesign of the flat, which estimates suggest cost in the region of £200,000. So more than I paid for my flat. (laughs) There are photos online if you're interested in seeing what that sort of cash buys you or what a mashup of a 1950s knocking shop and a Vermont B&B looks like. <laughs> Starts Googling. <laughs> Carrie Johnson, then one of Johnson's girlfriends, now his current wife, Ooh, zing! <laughs> said the flat was, quote, a John Lewis furniture nightmare in an interview with Tatler. An extraordinary statement about something most of the country can't afford. Mm. After she received a backlash, a friend told the Daily Mail, quote, Carrie has exquisite taste. An extraordinary statement about someone who lets Boris Johnson fuck her. <laughs> oh, oh, please, I've got to think of the sewage again. That's just such a horrible <laughs> image. But hang on, hasn't this story been rumbling on for ages? Yes, it has. But the messages were only recently revealed after a third investigation into the refurbishment of the Grace and Favour flat following claims the cash was not properly declared and registered. Johnson was originally cleared of breaking the ministerial code by Lord Guite, the independent advisor on ministers' interests who carried out the initial investigation. But the messages were discovered by the Electoral Commission in a second investigation. Guite has now carried out a third investigation into the flat's funding. So, why did Boris Johnson not reveal those messages to the initial probe? Well, apparently he was unable to find the messages because he had changed phone. Mm. Which totally sounds believable, right? Mm. Right? Mm. If you spend too much time in a fridge, it just automatically deletes all your messages. But he was again cleared of breaking the ministerial code by Guy, although apparently he received a telling off about, quote, real failures of process relating to the missing messages. I fucking despair. It's almost, Hannah, I mean, almost, and maybe this is me being paranoid, but it's almost like they can't be trusted to hold each other accountable. That doesn't seem like something that would happen. You're right. I'm sorry. Forget I ever said it. Now then, we talk a lot about violence against women and girls at the hands of men on this podcast. It's an epidemic that's been around forever and appears to be going nowhere fast. 
And while the constant suggestions as to how women can moderate our behaviour to lower the probability it will happen to us feel pointless because one, for many of us it's already happened, and two, it's not the woman in control. If a man wants to hurt a woman, he will, no matter what she's had to drink, chosen to wear, or how hard she tries to flag down a fucking bus. I would be lying though if I said I didn't take all of those precautions anyway apart from the bus one, which is unbelievably fucking stupid for reasons well covered by Hannah on a previous podcast. You're welcome. And thank you. And so when Home Office Minister Rachel McLean said, we need a whole of society approach to tackling violence against women and girls, and I welcome initiatives from the private sector that deliver on this aim, I wasn't mad at her because she's right. However, the Path Community app, the first initiative from the private sector, aiming at this to get Home Office back in, has a good heart but obvious flaws. The free not-for-profit app designed by Harry Mead after he noticed around three out of five of his female friends had suffered some form of assault or something going wrong on journeys provides anyone walking home at night with a monitored route, avoiding unlit streets, alleys or areas known for antisocial behaviour on their phone. Move more than 40 metres from the route or stop for more than three minutes and the app will ask if you're okay. If there's no reply, nominated guardians, normally friends and family, receive a notification on their phones to say there has been a deviation. They can then check on the person in question and alert the police if they're unable to do so. Okay, big fucking problem number one. Women are mostly attacked by men we know. How long before, well, she trusted the wrong guardian with that route information is added to the pile of victim blaming. Big fucking problem number two. Domestic violence campaigners have flagged concerns about safety apps that trap movement being misused by abusers. Oh, shit, yes. <laughs> right? As Farah Nazir, chief executive of Women's Aid, says, they could potentially extend an abuser's reach beyond the home, controlling women in spaces they previously felt safe and free. And big fucking problem number three. What does this do to tackle the underlying problem of men's violence against women? Well, Nothing. And, as Anna Burley from Reclaim These Streets points out, we already share our location, we already ask our friends to text us when they get home, we already wear bright clothes, stick to the well-lit routes and clutch our keys between our fingers. It still isn't enough. Yeah, it makes me itch, the thought that that there is a way for people to even be aware that I stopped for three minutes or more on my journey home. And that's mm-hmm. me, that's just my personality. Part of that reason is because I am aware that if you allow people to have some control, you open the door to all the fucking control. And Absolutely. I find it completely, yeah, it makes me, makes me want to scratch my face just thinking about it. But yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't solve any problems either. And, and also, to a certain extent, if I was really drunk at 21, and I'm talking about what I was like, and I had this on my phone, and you, a sensible friend, had said to me, we're going to get you on this app, Hannah, because, you you know, you're, you are the person more than anyone that makes me text you to say that I've got home safely and stuff. That so that would be you, right? And that I would stop, meet somebody in the street, start talking to them, whatever, go for a piss in a hedge, all of the things that you do, <laughs> and that you could get this, and then I forgot, and I got distracted, and I passed out when I got home. That actually, this might create problems for you, and worry for you, and for the police, when in fact... I'm just a drunken idiot. Like I said, I think it's got a good heart, but it, it's, it's got a lot of flaws. There's a lot of stuff where there's, there's room for 
improvement and there are also a lot of sort of trackers already out there but yeah i feel i'm actually i'm actually itching as we talk mm. because that idea of giving someone that knowledge anyone that knowledge so that i can be tracked is yeah it doesn't feel right somebody once asked me if i had that find your phone thing because i'm a person who loses stuff all the time and they were like and i was like no no no, I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know where I am. Most of the if time. my phone needs some time out without me, yeah, who am I to stop it? <laughs> yeah. Is anyone, and by anyone, I mean you, Mick, since, Hello. The other, since the people listening can't reply, in the market for some good news? I, I surely am. Well, new measures, which the government describes as being designed to make women and girls feel safer, have been added to the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill. The changes would mean that a victim of domestic abuse will be given more time to report incidents of common assault or battery against them. Under current rules, prosecutions must begin within six months of the offence, which I'm sure you can all immediately see the problem with. <laughs> Victims of abuse often take years to come forward to report to the police, meaning often only recent assaults can be prosecuted, if any at all. The new rules will mean that this requirement changes to six months from the date the incident is formally reported to the police with an overall time limit of two years from the offence to bring a prosecution. Now, that time limit itself suggests many historic offences won't be able to be taken into account, but I am no legal expert. It could be quite often. They only take sample cases from more recent times anyway. Yeah. Even so, it is a vast improvement. Domestic Abuse Commissioner Nicole Jacobs said, quote, it is important that all domestic abuse victims have the time and opportunity to report to the police. This is especially important following COVID restrictions where many victims faced additional challenges to seeking help and reporting domestic abuse. I want to see... I want to see increased prosecutions for domestic abuse and hope to see that as these measures remove another barrier to bringing perpetrators to justice. Another amendment added to the bill, FYI, means taking non-consensual photographs or video recordings of breastfeeding mothers will be made a specific offence punishable by up to two years in prison. It covers situations where the motive is to obtain sexual gratification or to cause humiliation, distress or alarm. If you're just taking a photo of your wife breastfeeding in the park, it's fine. And also it's yeah. fine. I find it distressing and alarming that that's had to be made an actual law. But oh, it's just horrible that people, men, think it's okay to yeah. do that. And also that they've had to specify that it covers situations where the motive is to obtain sexual gratification. Because actually doing stuff for your own sexual gratification gets you off a lot of other charges, mm. which is... That's kink awful. shaming, isn't it, Mick? <laughs> I mean, I'm not the one feeling ashamed, so maybe it's not me who needs to have a word with themselves. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we can all agree that while educated and inspiring women are certainly a bit trendy, that doesn't mean we should mark them as part of our cultural history. Oh, shit, sorry, I appear to have momentarily channeled an old white man. Specifically, Carlo Fumian, a history professor at the University of Padua, who has waded into a controversy raging in the northern Italian city as to whether to insert one statue of a woman, that's one, count them, among the 78, that's 78, count them, dedicated to notable male figures in Prato della Valle, the largest square in Italy that is probably pronounced much nicer <laughs> than that. 
Fumian is not keen on the idea if you hadn't already guessed. Elena Lucrezia Cornaro Piscopia is the no, woman no, no, in no, question. No, no. Eleanor Lucretia Cornaro Piscopia is the woman in question. <laughs> proposed for statuehood by two local councillors, Simone Pilatueri, I am very northern, and Margarita Colonello. The statues already in situ are dedicated to illustrious historical figures, and by figures I mean men who were either from the city or had links to it. And Piscopia, the first woman in the world to earn a PhD, received her doctorate degree in philosophy from the University of Padua in 1678. What's more, Pis- oh, I've forgotten again. Piscopia. Piscopia. What's more, Piscopia wouldn't even be replacing a fella, but rather taking up space on one of two empty pedestals. But detractors, and there are many, would rather keep the pedestal empty than allow a woman on it. Let's go back to Fumian, I know, I don't really want to either, who said the, quote, expensive and bizarre idea was, quote, a bit trendy, but culturally inconsistent. He told local newspaper Il Matino de Padova, Moving monuments as if they were Lego is a dangerous and unintelligent game. Instead, we should help people discover the original statue of Piscopia, triumphantly seated at the university. And that is the crux of the matter, isn't it? While notable men, 78 of the fuckers, count them, again, are easy to find in the heart of the city, whether you're looking or not. Notable women are some sort of Easter egg hunt. And I tell you what, it'd be a pretty short hunt too. Only 148 of all statues of Italian figures erected in public spaces across the whole of Italy are dedicated to women. Now, the headcount of male statuary in Italy doesn't exist, but a useful comparison might be found among the 229 busts on Rome's Pincian Hill, of which three depict women. Wow. I mean, it's probably going to be some when they put up a statue of Berlusconi, because they'll have, like, just women all around him, won't he, on the statue? Just his arms around I mean, young girls. Good luck to those women plying their trade, Hannah, but I'm not sure the bunga bunga women count. <laughs> yeah, I think you have to be named, don't you? Well, how do you know? I so. When I took an Italian GTSA, I thought, when am I ever going to use this? <laughs> <laughs> it really came in handy today. And you know what? Whenever I've had to do something that had to involve me pronouncing a French word, I thought, oh, it can't get much worse than this. But it turns out... <laughs> Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by our resident psychotherapist, Jane Watson. Jane, hello. Hello, Mickey. How are you? I'm all right, thanks, mate. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's January, so we're here to chat resolutions. Mm. Are you a resolutions person? Not really, but I do sometimes dabble. (laughs) As in... (laughs) Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Like, a couple of years ago, I decided to stop eating meat on the 1st of January but it wasn't a decision until the 1st of January I'm that kind of person and how's that resolution going yeah I'm still not eating meat but I had an intention of doing that anyhow yeah I actually think double is a really good word because I think most of us double in resolutions and obviously January is always a key time where people do the doubling so tell us why do we make resolutions I think it is a bit about us wanting to often better ourselves or make an improvement in our lives in some way. There's something about having a significant date that almost kickstarts something that's really appealing to human beings, it would seem. 
dates are arbitrary, aren't they? It doesn't really matter. But like mentally, they're quite important. And the start of a new year sort of connects really well with, oh, well, you know, out with the old and in with the new. So I think it's a way of people, a bit like what I was saying with my decision, is it, it almost sort of kind of puts a bit of a, an impetus to actually do something sometimes. Also, if things aren't great and you haven't been able to change them, the idea that, you know, in the new year I will is, is really quite, quite a seductive thought, isn't it? It's quite a nice idea that, oh, I'll do it then. But we're talking two weeks into January, right? Which is when mm. many of those promises we make to ourselves tend to start falling by the wayside a bit. So as much as we make them, why do we break resolutions? Well, I think there's lots of reasons, but I'd say the main one is maybe you weren't really that bothered about doing them anyway. You know, like maybe <laughs> maybe it was just something you said you'd do. I mean, often the ones that fail are the ones that are unrealistic you know like sort of I'm going to get really buff like you know if that's your reign and and you're giving yourself not enough time and you don't see the results then then you're more likely to sort of go well sob this nothing's happening Mm -hmm. so I think it's sort of about having a realistic frame about what you can achieve in a certain amount of time and if you don't have that it's quite easy to sort of go well it's not working this just isn't happening for me and it's not only just your behaviour you've got to change, it's your mindset. And I think one can be quite resistant to change anyway. You've got to kind of overcome your own thought process. And I mean, like, I haven't even mentioned that this year, and it isn't a resolution, <laughs> I promise you, but not that it doesn't matter that it is or isn't, but I had decided sort of early December that I was going to overcome my fear of the cold water. Yeah. And I realised about four days ago I hadn't really started even trying to, you know, (laughs) have a cold shower or something like that. And it was my head going, no, 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 we're not doing that. That's an awful idea. So if if your brain and body aren't in cahoots with each other, you're going to struggle, I think. I think that's really key, isn't it? Getting your brain and body in cahoots. And I guess one of the big tips would be only make resolutions that you you really want to happen. So my mate Tina once resolved to start smoking again. And listeners, she absolutely (laughs) nailed that one. But that does feel like cheating. Oh, wow. (laughs) Inspirational story you've just given us there. You are welcome. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, I... (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. I'm sure she did succeed. You know, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. But Tina's Tina's uh, little tips aside, are there any other tips to making resolutions that are easier to keep? Well, I think it is about being realistic. So, you know, if you're going to go all all encompassing, I'm going to be, you know, super fit and healthy. There's a fair chance that's not going to work out too well. But maybe if you have small steps. Mm-hmm it's drinking rather than cutting it entirely out i mean if you can brilliant but if you know maybe even it's about reducing things taking things in moderation doing one thing at a time and achieving it that way rather than it being huge and almost too much to sort of even envisage conquering Mm -hmm. no if it is something like stopping smoking maybe even starting smoking (laughs) get a support network tell your friends because you know like friends will offer you cigarettes if they think you're smoking or drinking (laughs) yeah yeah your friends know that you're not that hopefully will try and support you in that rather than inadvertently setting you off onto sort of 
wanting to sort of go back to something. And I guess by involving other people, you're making yourself a bit more accountable as well. I think so. As soon as you sort of put it out there, then you've put it out there, haven't you? You've said, this is what I'm going to do. And then people know. And I think that does put a bit of hopefully healthy pressure on you Mm -hmm. to at least give it a go. So whether you want to change or not, and I think that generic get fit is, I mean, what does that even mean, get fit? It, it's its so sliding scale. But I've seen a lot of memes, memes, I think the kids call them, mm. saying stuff like, don't resolve to change, you're great as you are, accept yourself and treat you with kindness. And that last bit seems as impossible to me as giving up smoking would be to a smoker. In fact, mm. to be kinder to myself basically means becoming a completely different person. So am I being a negative Nelly or is that tricky? I think it's really tricky. I mean, it's always down to individual circumstances, but I suppose what you're talking about is uh, how you feel about yourself Mm. and how you sort of communicate with yourself. And some sort of resolution is not going to address that you can't kind of just switch something like that on and off that often takes a lot of sort of deep and complicated work possibly something sort of therapeutic so I don't think you're being negative at all but I mean yeah I mean it's it's quite hard isn't it it's kind of pithy tale just accept yourself well how do you do that if that's not something you feel that that you can ever do it feels really sort of unachievable and not very helpful doesn't it it's a sort of vegan generic as get fit isn't it it's like okay what does that mean yeah and it's sort of quite dismissive of how hard it is as well to be able to be positive and sort of upbeat about yourself and self-supportive yeah definitely so do you have any tips that don't involve hours of therapy in how we can train our brains (laughs) to be just that little bit kinder to ourselves I talk about this quite a lot with people there's something about sort of self-talk really so we often have I call it a sort of inner inner voice do you have an inner voice I do and it's my uh she she me is my harshest critic well we often call them and I'm not I'm I'm not no you're really not it's fairly common we often call it a critical parent because it can often come from that uh, background doesn't always have to be but it's almost a sort of really extreme element of what you were sort of internalised very early on as a child. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is if you've got an internal negative critic is first, so I'll ask you this, if you were doing something wrong, how would you communicate with yourself? Just a lot of, oh, you stupid dick, you're fucking it up again. Come on now. Oh, that's typical, isn't it? It was all Mm. going so well till you got involved. Get in the bin. Yeah, yeah. What would you say to other people who felt like they were messing up? And don't mess it up by saying, get in the bin, Jane. Just say, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'd just be like, you know, oh, be, be kinder to yourself. Like, yeah, it is that give yourself a chance, cut yourself some slack. Yeah. All of those things that seem Mm. impossible to do when you're talking to yourself Mm. yeah so I would say that's a more authentic sounding you wouldn't you I guess but I'm very used to head mickey yeah the head mickey is there and very sort of entrenched but what I think you could start doing is start when you are attacking yourself 
think about what we've just said, which is how would you speak to someone else if that someone else wasn't you? And it would be a kinder response. And I would, when I catch it, challenge Head Mickey to that counter that voice with the kinder voice. And it won't feel very easy or authentic, and you'll probably not believe it for some time. But if you do it enough, there will be a shift. You might find one day that you go, okay, that doesn't matter, don't worry, everyone messes up sometimes. And that's what you want, because I think the problem is, is when you've been brought up with that negativity, everything's just sort of disaster and you can't forgive yourself, but you've noticed that other people are quite easily forgiving of themselves. Yeah, And that's what you want to sort of end up towards. But that won't happen overnight. I kind of think they're like magical creatures. When I meet people who are like that, I'm like, are you a unicorn? What the fuck? Obviously, this is just one example. But um, I read it recently as, you know, you've got two children. They both spill milk. And one is shouted at and screamed at, spilling milk and criticised. And the other one is told, oopsie, accident. So which child has the critical voice and which child has the kind voice? And that's sort of usually how that goes. But which one goes on to spill loads and loads of milk without consequences? Well, yeah, I mean, that is the problem. Yeah, that is that is the problem. There's a lot of milk spilt and no one taken accountability for it. <laughs> I suppose what I'm saying is those voices are quite deep and hard to shift. But you can do something like counter it with the, the kind of voice that you'd offer to friends. When you catch yourself, and you won't always catch yourself being negative because it will be so natural to be negative mm. and critical, you often don't even notice you're doing that, I should think. But when you do, to go, hold on a minute, I would normally say this to someone else, so I will say it to myself. Push back. I think that's really, really good advice. And obviously, sometimes mm. the best advice is the hardest to follow, but I will absolutely bear that in mind. Yeah. And Try the other it. thing I think that's problematic is the notions of self-care and self-love make me feel a bit weird just even saying it. Like, it just mm. feels like it's it's up there with selfish and we're trained not to be yeah. trained and we're, we're sort of taught not to be selfish. But there are times when we need to be, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. And I think... That resistance probably ties in with how you feel with the negative voice. Is it's sort of not for me, and we do gravitate to what we're more comfortable with. I mean, going back to sort of slightly tenuously the topic of New Year's resolutions is it's not easy to step outside of your comfort zone, is it? And sometimes your comfort zone isn't very comfortable, Mm. but you'd rather be there than in the nicer place. It's that shift. It's the changing bit, right? The shift, right? Yeah. I often call it your uncomfortable, comfortable place. Uh huh. Yeah. Let, let's stay within our windows of tolerance. But I think with any sort of change to come, you have to step out of that window of tolerance, or at least try. Oh, but Jane, why would I want to leave my cozy cellar of spikes? Right. Well, you know, you can make <laughs> it look nice. I'm sure. <laughs> a couple of throw cushions. They'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, open the window a bit. What are the basics then of self-care? Stuff that even I could do, that Hannah Dunleavy could do, that you can start with. Oh, goodness. Now you've thrown me a challenge. (laughs) I mean, then also I would say self-care isn't sort of lighting incense, putting flower petals in your bath. I just don't think it's 
that's I mean it's nice Mm-hmm. But I suppose when we're talking about emotional self-care, I think it's about just knowing what you want and sort of looking after yourself more. Stepping back or being able to ask for help, forgive yourself, say no, and think about what you need and, and maybe sometimes ask for it. Take back your space and sort of hold your boundaries better. I think that's often things that people sometimes struggle with. And I guess the step one is setting your boundaries yeah I think boundaries is huge actually often people are feel like you know they can't say no you know they're people pleasers they feel that they don't want to let someone down or they won't be liked anymore and often when you do set better boundaries you feel a bit better about yourself and you do less things you don't want to do that feels better Mm -hmm. it's not about sort of being selfish it's about being more conscious of what you need Definitely. And I think as someone who was a a consummate people pleaser, a yes person until probably my 40s, by saying yes to people Mm. that I didn't really want to say yes to, I ended up disappointing people that I did care about because I knew they would understand. Right. Yeah. Because you were thinking about how can I cause the least upset all around Mm -hmm. rather than asking yourself, what is it I want? And often, you know, when you say, no, I can't, people I mean more often than not you just get an okay it's not quite as scary as you think it is but again talking about the other stuff we were talking about is um, a lot of the things we fear aren't aren't real they're not in the present they're in the past you know I call it sort of terrible time travel you wouldn't want me on Doctor Who (laughs) (laughs) a lot of the things we worry about are almost like things that sort of were triggered quite a long time ago Mm. I'm sure there's a story to your people pleasing and that'll be the driver, not that this person who's invited you to this party is going to be horrible to you. It'll be more about a sort of almost a sort of historical fear of saying no or not doing the right thing and what the punishment might be. But the punishment isn't there anymore. Yeah, or like trying to fix something that's in the past and you think, well, if I do this enough... Yes. ...and make myself uncomfortable... It'll change. Yeah it's kind of a bit of magical thinking is it if i if i keep doing this enough times that'll fix it that'll make me feel better but i think you'll find it doesn't so final question and that is from my cat clarky did resolve not to interrupt me while i was doing interviews but on january the 10th appears to have forgotten those promises i imagine clarky isn't the only one breaking resolutions so if someone's listening and is mm. like yeah actually i do want to get back on track but i'm sort of struggling Do you have any advice to give themselves a very gentle, very kind kick up the arse? I think you've said it yourself. Just offer that kindness, even if it feels sort of hard to say to yourself, try it. And absolutely, if there's a blip, that doesn't mean it's over. I think that's another reason people fail is one thing goes wrong. You know, they have a drink in January and they're like, well, I've screwed dry January. No, you can continue as you mean to go on. Uh, it doesn't sort of take away from anything you've done previously. Just, yeah, offer that kindness and it's OK to mess up and it's OK to have a blip and go back. And it's OK to just decide it's not for you and you don't want to do it anymore. And it's okay to try again. As ever, obviously, I've recorded this, but I'll be saving that particular snippet to just sort of play to myself in, in moments of, of stress and panic. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> Jane, where can people find you, please? I've got a website called Jane Watson Therapy, and I've got a 
Facebook page and that's literally about it because I'm not very technologically savvy. I'm I'm on the UKCP website as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you as ever for your smashing advice and also for being willing to join me in my little get fit efforts and come cycling with me. Exciting. Yes, totally up for that. Just need a bike. <laughs> details, details, mate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on do one kid jenny off the blocks i am joined by two-time w series champion and general motor racing goddess jamie chadwick hello jamie how are you doing i'm very good thank you how are you i'm fine thanks so you're here to talk to me about your year, as in 2021. What a year it has been for you. You've just grabbed your second W Series title. You competed in the Extreme E Championship and you completed a second year as a Williams development driver. That's an incredible year. Again, another one. So what's been your highlight? Oh, God. Yeah, it has been an amazing year. And I think particularly off the back of 2020 to then return to sort of Full rating this year um, in W Series, we're on the Formula One package. So that felt like a massive step up. And then, yeah, of course, to to retain that title, I think, has to be has to be the highlight for me. And then also with Extreme to have a year with so many sort of different things, it's definitely probably been my best year. Yeah, very happy looking back. So as you say, you're part of the Formula One season last year as well. It's sort of like being on the undercard, isn't it, in a boxing match? Like a brilliant, brilliant opportunity for W Series to showcase the series to a wider audience, a wider fan base and get loads more attention. Have you found that the situation sort of changed for you? Do you feel like more people know who you are now? Yeah, it definitely felt like a big step up from an exposure point of view. Yeah, it's something that, you know, when you're actually racing on the weekend, it doesn't feel too dissimilar. You know, you kind of go about things the same and whilst a lot of the tracks that we raced on were you know quite a lot different because they were the Formula One tracks I hadn't raced a lot of them before the actual you know sensification when you're there didn't feel that dissimilar but actually the whole kind of atmosphere and afterwards and yeah the exposure that it got in comparison to the first season definitely was a big step up and as we started to have more and more fans come in and particularly the last race in America for example it just felt yeah, like a whole level up from what I'd experienced before. For the uninitiated, because you're not just driving in the W Series, you've been driving in the Extreme E Championship as well. What's the difference between, obviously we know W Series is like a, a, a women-only series, but what, what's the difference between those two competitions? So Extreme E is also a very new series. Um, it was the first year of the championship this year, and it's actually it's completely different. So W Series is more like a single car. Well, it's a single seater car. It's more like a all female support race, two Formula One and a junior sort of Formula One series. So the way that the tracks we race on, everything we do is is much more in line with Formula One. Whereas Extreme E is off road racing. Oh, wow. Um, the cars are all electric and they're SUVs. So they're big, big cars. So completely different. It's like rallying in comparison to track racing, which is what W Series is. So it was a completely new challenge for me, something very, very different. But actually, what the series is, you know, so unique to maybe other championships is it's kind of been put in place to raise awareness for climate change. So we go to remote locations all around the world to shine a spotlight on the climate issues that they have there um, whilst trying to sort of promote awareness and use the platform of 
sport to kind of educate as many people as we can about climate change. And on top of that, they also have a format, which means that you have one male driver and one female driver in each team. And one driver does one lap, the other driver does the other lap. So it's completely equal from a gender perspective as well. So yeah, it's been an awesome series to be a part of. Very different challenge from an actual driving point of view, but at the same time, um, so much fun to kind of have that experience. Obviously, W Series is, is all women competitors. What's it like competing outside of that environment? Because, I mean, I know that the Extreme E Series isn't the only mixed competition you've been in. Is there any hostility towards women in different environments? Honestly, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I um, started in the sport when I was... 12 years old and I reckon I raced against two or three women maximum all the way up until I got to W Series which was when I was about 20. For eight years of my career um, I just raced against men predominantly and I kind of wouldn't say I had a negative experience with that at all. I think it is a bit different in terms of the environment and the culture is a little bit different but at the same time I think what W Series is showing is that women are able to be involved in motorsport and involved at a high level and I think just that kind of association and that kind of visibility for women at the top of the sport is only going to be a positive thing. But when, you know, we do go and race against a mixed competition, I don't think that, you know, it should be too dissimilar because actually once it's cliche, but once the helmet's on, you know, the feeling that you get inside the car and when you're racing is is the same in my opinion. So it's quite interesting, like we hear more and more about the appetite for people consuming women's sports as spectators as fans is kind of growing and growing and growing and w series has been televised for the first and second series and i'm sure there will be an announcement next year about you know what happens next but because it's interesting to me like if i go to a women's football match i generally see either really young girls with their families quite often with their dads or old guys, basically, who've just gone because they love football. Do you see a lot of that in in W Series as well? Not so much, to be honest. I think you've got your motorsport fans that, you know, watch motorsport, you like football, like you said, across the board. But I think what W Series was quite interesting with is that it felt like it attracted a whole new audience to W Series. You know, there's a whole kind of host of people that are interested in W Series that weren't necessarily motorsport fans. They were maybe women in sport fans or wanted to to follow it and it just felt like it was not just necessarily the same people that watch you know the Formula 3 races that I've done in the past or anything like that it felt like you had this new audience and I think that was a really positive thing I think a lot more women are watching W Series I get a lot of messages from young girls and yeah people that are inspired to get into into something like W Series so I think that's really positive as well and I think aside from that when we're in America for the last race I think you just see people that don't necessarily need to know what Formula One is, need to know what W Series is, but we'll just watch it and think that's a good motor race, regardless of the gender, regardless of who's buying the helmet. They'll just enjoy, you know, it as a spectacle. And I think that's what we're trying to achieve as well is just good racing. And I think as a sport, something that people do just genuinely want to watch for the right reasons. So to compete in Formula One, you need to get your... FIA super license is a number of criteria you have to meet and one of those is to get 40 points in three seasons and so through winning the W series you've got 15 points this year so where are you up to now in terms of your points because I know that's sort of the dream for you yeah I mean it's part of it so um, yeah I'm now up to 25 so that gives me the opportunity to test him in Formula One but still another 15 to go uh, to get the full super license 
But I think, yeah, I'm under no illusions. There's still quite a lot I need to achieve in the sport before getting to Formula One, aside from if I attain a super, super license or not. So, yeah, from my side, it's just about making sure that I can do everything possible and get all the best results that I can between now and the next couple of years to give myself the best opportunity to get a space in that Formula One grid. 15 more points. That's starting to feel like a very achievable dream now, right? Yeah, definitely. I still feel like there's a lot I need to achieve. But yes, I think, yeah, I've done already, you know, a chunk of the points to give me an opportunity to test, which I think is the next next viable step. And then, yeah, the next 15 points is, is what will determine, you know, whether I get that license or not. That's really exciting. So you spent two years as a development driver at Williams. Is that going to continue in 2022? Are you doing more with with Williams? Yeah, definitely. I've been with them now since 2019 and have a really great relationship with the guys there. And they really helped supported my journey um, through through this season or last season. So yeah, I'd love to continue that relationship. I'd love to be able to kind of put it into something more as well. Um, ultimately, down the line, I'd love to have a race seat with with Williams. But um, yeah, to be able to continue that relationship is a bit of a dream come true. So fortunately, um, we're sort of heading in the right direction, but still need to to plan plan out exactly what's next for next year. So there was a bit of a, if we look at Formula One, it's been in the news a lot recently because obviously the season has just concluded and there was a situation whereby Max Verstappen ended up winning the championship, sort of just pipping Lewis Hamilton by, I think, less than 10 points. And it was all a bit controversial. Could you explain to us what the situation was for people who've maybe seen it sort of in the news but but didn't really understand it yeah I'll try and sum this up in as quick as words <laughs> possible but yeah in short there's 23 odd races I might be wrong on that about 23 races in Formula One and throughout the whole season it had been sort of really close battle between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen so close that they went to the last race on equal points so effectively whoever won that race or beat you know one another would win the championship in that last race, Max happened to be on pole position. Lewis got into the lead, led the whole race. And then at the very end of the race, there was another car went off the track um, and caused a safety car, which punches the whole pack up. Mm. And when there's a safety car, you can opt to come in the pits and put new tyres on. But if Lewis had come into the pits and put new tyres on, he would have lost track position to Max because Max is behind. He can see when Lewis goes in and make a decision off the basis of whether Lewis comes in, if he wants to come in or not. Lewis obviously stayed out because that's the tactical decision. And Max came in, changed onto brand new tyres, whereas Lewis was on tyres that were very, very old. At the very end of the race, normally the rule is they can either restart the race and the lapped cars, so because there's cars that had been lapped already that were mm. in between Lewis and Max, don't go past the safety car so that when they restart, there's Lewis and then there's three cars in the middle that are lapped and then Max. Or they have to let the lap cars go past to then join the back of the queue so that when they restart, it's Lewis in the lead and Max right behind. What they decided to do in the last couple of laps was let some of the lap cars go, but not all of them, and then just restart the race, which the best analogy I've heard to it is like in football, if Lewis Hamilton's 7-0 up and then in the last few minutes, the referee goes next goal wins and gives Max a penalty. So Max obviously overtook Lewis on fresher tyres and won the World Championship. And although, in my opinion, Max fully deserved to win the World Championship as a season on the whole in the last race, it was yeah massively controversial and not the best outcome, in my opinion. 
Okay, well, thank you for that. That's a good explanation. Moving back to to you, Jamie, what's next for you in 2022? Working on that at the moment. I think still still some things that um, need to be decided, but ultimately I want to be able to step up and out of W Series, back into mixed competition, whether that's in the feeder series for Formula 1, like Formula 3 or Formula 2. Uh, we're just trying to sort of work out now, but yeah, nothing nothing confirmed yet. So we need to keep an eye open then and, and, and watch this space. So where can we follow you, Jamie, in order to do that? Follow my journey through Williams, through W Series, through myself. Mainly on socials, you'll probably find out the most stuff. And what's your what's what are your social handles? Jamie Chadwick. Jamie, congratulations again on a brilliant year and thank you so much for coming back to chat to us. Cheers, thanks. <laughs> Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film did we watch this week in which the only career woman is literally killed by the glass ceiling? (laughs) This week, we were fundamentally confusing asthma and panic attacks as we watched 1992's The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Uh, Sorry, it annoyed me the whole way through. That's not asthma, that you're hyperventilating. What you have in there is a panic attack. Anyway, directed by Curtis Hansen, who it's fair to say has been responsible for an eclectic filmography, mm-hmm. including L.A. Confidential and 8 Mile. Yeah. yeah, and also Wonder Boys, which is an absolute banger of a film. I fucking love it. Michael Douglas. Yeah. So I'll talk about the writing in a minute. I'm just going to go straight into the plot now. The story focuses on couple Claire and Michael Bartell, played by Annabella Siora and Matt McCoy, a happy family alongside daughter Emma with another baby on the way. They're a pretty classic performatively woke slash liberal family. They've hired a chap Solomon, played by Ernie Hudson, from a local charity which finds work for people with learning difficulties. But they're actually kind of a bit racist, aren't they? So... They're very well. They found work for a racial stereotype. I was thinking about the legs again. <laughs> we'll come to the legs, Hannah. <laughs> Things take a turn when Claire is pretty graphically sexually assaulted by her obstetrician, Dr. Mott, in a scene which I would describe as gratuitous. And Michael then subsequently leans on her to report him. Turns out he's been sexually assaulting lots of women. And as a number of them come forward, he kills himself. His wife, Mrs. Mott, as uh, I, d- I don't think she actually has a, a name, yeah, is also pregnant. Well, she becomes Peyton, oh, okay. but I don't think that is actually her name. But anyway, uh, Mrs. Is it anybody's Mott, name? I think it is at least one person's name because I think I've heard it used at least once before. But it's not a common name, I don't think. Very American sounding name. I it's would the say, sort of but... name that when I was growing up, 15 year olds who really liked rom-coms, wanted to change their name to. So Mrs. Mott is also pregnant and then loses her baby and has an emergency hysterectomy upon discovery that she's broke because his life insurance doesn't cover suicide. Well, you can imagine what that does to her. That's right, it turns her absolutely fucking batshit mental and she sets about destroying the life of the woman responsible for all this after finding out Claire's identity on the news. Claire makes it pretty easy for Mrs. Mott slash Peyton, played by Rebecca de Mornay, to infiltrate their lives when she enacts the most lax policy imaginable yeah. to hire Don't take any references. Just, I, I don't even know how I know about this job. I've just rocked up just and uh, cool, to the, come in. To the come nanny in. gossip down the park. And I thought, <laughs> you might give me a job. 
So she hires her to look after her children, having now given birth to Joey, so that she can free up some time to erect a really fucking elaborate greenhouse. Because why wouldn't you do that three months after giving birth? Cue bad acting, unbelievable plot devices, accusations of child abuse, really creepy breastfeeding, a senselessly elaborate death in the senselessly elaborate greenhouse after best buddy Marlene almost rumbles Mrs. Mott slash Peyton, and not one, but two broken legs. And honestly... <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, Jen. He's okay. His legs are broken. <laughs> A really measured reaction to this quite heinous injury, actually. Both of my legs are broken. (laughs) And, of course, ultimately, there's a redemption. So that's nice. I don't think it's a huge surprise to me that I hadn't really heard very much about many of the actors in this but the notable exception of Julianne Moore, who is quite clearly out-acting every single person in this film by about 9,000% as Marlene. But I've got to be honest and say it's probably not her best work. Annabella Ciora has also worked pretty consistently in TV and was later nominated for her role in The Sopranos. So Mick, Hannah, you'll have come across yeah, her before. She's glorious. Actually, she, she knows her way around a side of beef. And actually, she has. She's very interesting because she didn't work very consistently. She was one of the well, people who disappeared. Weinstein. At, yeah. yeah, because of Weinstein. Of course, we have to give a nod to Ernie Hudson, better known as Winston Zeddemore in the Ghostbusters films. And all I can say is, you know, if I'm being generous, that would have been a tough act to follow anyway, right? So the film scores 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. And to be honest, I'm surprised it's that high. When I was looking for a film for this week... I will say it was quite slim pickings before I go on to reveal that this film went straight to number one Mm -hmm. in the US box office when it opened and there it remained for four weeks grossing a worldwide total of $140 million. Critically, it was sort of received as like, meh. Which also surprised me because I thought they would have come down on it a bit harder than they did. Though I was interested in a review by Rita Kempsey of the Washington Post who described it as fetal attraction and ended (laughs) with the line, this anti-feminist parable is both a labour and a pain. Good lines. Mm. On that note, as I was watching this, I grew slightly irritated and thought to myself, okay, another fucking man writing about shit he doesn't understand. The two worst things, in inverted commas, that can happen to a woman, she loses her child, she's the victim of sexual assault. And there's a sort of, like, misery porn about it that is... I I don't know. I think I was more annoyed about it because I've recently watched something on the BBC along the exact same lines and it pissed me off. But I was astonished to find that this film was actually written by a woman in fact hannah amanda silver who wrote this film was also responsible for writing the rise of the planet of the apes which i believe is a film dear to your heart it is. i bloody love it does so anyone break their legs in it hannah i will say it has virtually zero dialogue in it though um, <laughs> maybe that was the key <laughs> and maybe that was the key i'm okay i've, I've broken, broken my legs, my legs. <laughs> Oh my god! I genuinely thought, is this because because I fucking hated this film so much, yeah. and I had to watch it in in fifteen minute increments because I needed to step away from it. And the last fifteen increments, I had a little bit of help, and I thought maybe that was the reason I was laughing so much because no, it's very I, very funny. I, I think all of that six point three points comes from the last fifteen minutes, which is 
a comedy masterpiece, genuinely. What I thought was interesting about this is that it's released in 1992, which is the same year as Basic Instinct and Single White Female. So clearly there was something of a trend at the time mm. for films about mad, bad and dangerous to know women. Crazy I'm bitches. not sure. I'm not sure what we're calling that genre. Google didn't throw up any interesting or enlightening results, but suffice it to say, this did not make Time Magazine's 12 best female revenge movies. Hannah, do you want to... Is that your suggested genre, Bitches Bitches Be Crazy? crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I like it. I have watched a lot of films like this one, but I've never watched this one before. Had either of you seen it, Mickey? I I had seen it before, yes. And I remember it doing very, very well at the box office. Hannah, what about you? No, I know I hadn't seen it before. I had heard of it. um, Yeah, I'd heard of it as well, yeah. And it kind of melded into my mind with one of those other films that you've just mentioned. Bitches be crazy. That I haven't seen, yeah. Um, I have seen Fatal Attraction. I had more hope that it would be good because it is Curtis Hansen and and he does make good films. Even I say like in her shoes, which I don't like rom-coms and I certainly don't like films about sisters, like, you know, finding shared and all of that. But it's actually a really solid film. So, yeah, I don't don't know what went wrong with this. It was awful. I think it is a film that relies really heavily on trad wife morality. So both... Claire and Peyton, you know, their their role in their lives is to be uh, mums and wives. That's quite clear. You know, Claire's actually getting a nanny in so she can follow her hobby, which is to build a greenhouse. She she volunteers at the botanical gardens. And that's, you know, it's, it's a very wealthy lifestyle. That's very clear. And at one point, Mr. Can't Feel His Legs says... <laughs> <laughs> He says to her, you don't have to do it all like you did with the first kid, implying that, you know, she was the one responsible for all of the caring. I mean, he literally doesn't ever go in to see the baby unless Peyton is there doing her Peyton thing and trying to lure him in with a a feminine wiles. And I've got to say, I do not understand why everyone thinks she is drop dead gorgeous when she mostly looks like angry bread. She is just (laughs) just so weird. But I think it's really telling. That the only career woman is, like I said, you know, she's killed literally by the the glass ceiling and it's kind of seen as, it's not great that she does that. She's quite outspoken and a bit vulgar, isn't she, Marlene? And, you know, you're not supposed to warm to her, even though I think she's one of the best characters in it. I realise the slim pickings. And so, yeah, I wondered if that was sort of a backlash to the 1980s power-suited working girls, including working girl in, in films, because it seems very much like this is what you should be doing, this is what you shouldn't be doing. Yeah, and also there's the domestic thriller aspect of it as well, which is, you know, women maybe relate to it or were supposed to relate to it because the scariest things that happen to women, a lot of them do happen within the home. So, you know, there is that kind of fear in your own house, albeit not usually from a psycho, not nanny. Yeah, I I agree with all of those things. I would say for me, what didn't work was it just had so many plot devices, so many things that I just couldn't, I just couldn't even buy into it. Like, for example, the greenhouse. Well, no, I mean, earlier than that, I mean, I genuinely don't think, I mean, and I had a bit of a Google to try and find out um, and I couldn't really. Certainly now that she wouldn't have known it was, who it was that had reported her husband it wouldn't have been reported on the telly I don't know if that was the case in 1990 so the whole premise is somewhat 
unbelievable. But to me, like the idea that she, you know, she would do this thing, not like, like she's still got breast milk, which involves a kind of pre-planning that she was going to do this, that you think, would that be someone who just lost their baby be capable of that? What does that, what message does that send about, about like grief? Do you know what I mean? That, that seems a bit weird, but just the whole, as you pointed out, Jen, that's not how asthma works. You know, there's so many things in it that just, just wouldn't happen. And then it ends on this, well, let's call it magical Negro ex machina uh-huh. <laughs> that makes no logical sense whatsoever. And yeah, I just, uh, the feminist stuff, yes, it annoys me, but actually just fundamentally insulted me as a film, my intelligence as a viewer. I had a proper yeah. Hannah Dunleavy moment. The first time I started writing notes, because I think it is, it's laughable how bad a lot of this film Did you write is, your own if, name? <laughs> no, I didn't. I said uh, Christmas, sort it out. I, I actually wrote, why the fuck would you have a surprise party and not give her a chance to dress up slash not be coming back from delivering your clothes to the fucking dry cleaners? Yeah. 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 And also, why the fuck would you be in a situation where she's suspicious of her, but she doesn't sack her? She has the power. Claire has the power. So despite this idea that she's being gaslit or all of this stuff, she has the fucking power. Just sack her. Do you know what I mean? Her husband's mm-hmm. not going to give a shit. But the thing, like, even the bit where, where she rocks up and she's like, oh, hello, I've heard about your vacancy that you haven't advertised. Also, let me tell you that actually about my life story, it's quite sad. Uh, I've, you know, lost a baby and my husband and uh, I've turned to nannying and whatever. I'd be thinking, are you in a good place? Looking <laughs> <laughs> after my children right now. Yeah. Maybe take a bit of time and, you know, whatever. Like, the whole thing is utterly utterly ridiculous i think i mostly would have found it funny like the broken legs for example but i felt like <laughs> the premise of it is so horrible and that scene where he like sexually assaults her is vile like it's oh no it's horrible it was yeah. it is horrible a slight defense of it it focuses on her face and i actually think you get to see the range of emotions that i imagine and, and have felt myself of what the fuck is happening? Is this okay? Mm. This isn't okay. Am I in the wrong? And you, she actually does that very well. I think, you know, Siora is a very, she's a good actress. But yeah, it is just, it feels like it goes on for a long time. It feels I pretty it was gratuitous. Male gazy as well. It felt like there was almost supposed to be something like a bit titillating about it. I really found it like appalling. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned bad acting. Can we talk about the bad acting? Because I have a little theory Please. that it's, it doesn't matter how good an actor you are, how many Oscars are in your downstairs toilet. One of the hardest things to pull off is that to the people, the family you've infiltrated, you are the loveliest, sweetest, must be trusted person. And to the viewers, they know you are sinister as fuck. And I think that is really hard to do. And Demone absolutely doesn't do it. She looks like she smells sinister, (laughs) right? Yeah. It's just like, how are you, how are you trusting her? Even when she's telling a story, like when she does the thing to Solomon and she sort of looks at him and then does the fake smile and you're like no no one would be convinced by this no one at all no i'm a better actress than that yeah well he's got a number hasn't he straight away yeah it's because he's made of magic he's magical yeah exactly that is a really really weird i mean it's a, it's a like, character that manages to be offensive both to black people and to people with with 
Intellectually disabled people. Intellectually disabled is the word I was looking for. <laughs> oh, just going back to my theory about the trad wife morality, it's interesting that Peyton does get skewered by the white picket fence, you know, yes. the ideal she's aiming for and trying to steal. No, so ending, heavy-handed. Yeah. If we're going to talk about the ending, like, I mean... Have you from the very your mi- legs, Helen? From the very minute... <laughs> she's okay. When she says, no, my legs are broken, it's incredible. <laughs> but my favourite moment is actually, I must get the baby. I mean my things. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so ludicrous. It's so ludicrous. And then at the end, after she's been skewered by the picket fence, and they all are up in the loft and they have a tiny like little hug, right? And then they walk off and he's holding the baby and the little girl goes, come on, Solomon. Like, like, down you come. You're welcomed back in. Like, they haven't just killed a fucking woman. There's no trauma. (laughs) This is a film that's supposed to be about trauma, right? And they all just skip off downstairs like they didn't just murder someone. I mean, maybe she needed murdering. Better get to daddy. I believe his legs are broken. (laughs) Come on, Solomon. (laughs) It's just ludicrous. I did shout at the screen, though. What a punch. Fucking hell. Yeah, <laughs> I enjoyed the punch. It's very good. That. There's two things that really, really irritated me. The greenhouse. <laughs> One of them, all of what it. What the fuck? <laughs> like, well, yeah, obviously there was that. But just like, well, I've had a kid like three months ago and actually I'm kind of bored and whatever. So I think I'll just I'll just make a really big greenhouse in the garden. And like, like you would get a nanny in. So that you could build a fucking green... Like, it was... She likes growing things, Jen. She's grown the baby. Can't be fucked with it anymore. She wants to grow <laughs> other things. Again, the whole premise of it was just like... How are you... What? Also, then, at the end, when they keep going, no, Peyton, you're going to have to leave now, Peyton. You're going to have to go, why are we still calling her Peyton when we now know that she's Mrs. fucking Mott? Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard to break that habit. Yeah. You're going to have to go now, Peyton, actually. And they're quite nice to her. I mean, she's obviously just punched her in the face, but they're not like, Peyton, get the fuck out of my house right now. You're completely mental. Yeah. You've been breastfeeding my child. Well, like, Michael Bartel's a no, no. right rube, isn't he? She's like, I'm going to call he's the police. And he's end. like, why? She's left of her own accord. It's all gone fine. I don't know if you noticed the line where she was going to get my baby. Oh, sorry. Yes, my things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, actually, I think he deserved to have both his legs broken. I think he did. I think he did. I think they nailed by the time he got downstairs. (laughs) I mean, he was so just wishy-washy. I don't even know what he was supposed. He was just he was largely a sentient beard. That's all he was. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, still one of the better actors in the film. Notwithstanding the two broken legs, I would say there was nothing good about this film. Does anyone want to say anything good about it? The only possible good thing that I can find about this is that it did do well at the cinema, which meant that somebody gave Curtis Hansen a lot of money and he went on and made L.A. Confidential. I suppose that would be the upside because that is a great film. I would also like to say that uh, The Beard, whatever he was called, The Beard does a thing that just really annoys me when people do it in real life. So it's just worth mentioning is that she is sexually assaulted. He says, I think you should tell people. She says, I don't want to. He says... What about other people he's going to go on and do it to? And I have to just say, I absolutely fucking hate it because it's happened Mm -hmm. to me in the past about a number of things, not just about like things like that, where people have basically said, you, an actual victim, your feelings are less important than a hypothetical future victim. It's your responsibility. Yeah, your responsibility. It's not even, yeah, it's not your responsibility, but that's not the thing. 
It's when people have more sympathy for someone who has yet to be assaulted than they have for someone who has literally just been assaulted. I picked up on that as well and thought, oh, Mr... Bartell, Michael, sentient mm. beard man. Although at that point we didn't know he was just a sentient beard. But um, I did think, oh, fuck off, you bell it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And next time he's going to say, you should definitely, because do you remember when my legs were broken? I made no fuss whatsoever. <laughs> None. I soldiered on. I'm emotionless. <laughs> well, next time he'll, he'll think to himself, well, I mean, the possible outcome of this is that someone calls himself Peyton and infiltrates our home and both my legs get broken. So <laughs> let's not do that again. Uh. Yeah, that's an odd message to say at the end, isn't it? As well. This is what happens when you report sexual predators. I mean, that hadn't even occurred to me. But yes, I suppose that is ultimately <laughs> the consequence of her reporting a sexual predator. It's just it's just nothing good about it. There's nothing good about it. But I don't wanna I don't wanna peek too soon here. <laughs> I think I probably don't need to ask the question, but let's ask it. Rated or dated? It's it's it's, it's one of those weird ones where it, I, I would never have rated it, and it is mm. dated, particularly because it's one of those films that even though it's got massive plot holes, it would have completely unravel if you put a mobile phone in there. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go with dated. Hannah. Oh, God, yeah, dated. Yeah, I, I agree. Why did they make so many films at that time about mad, crazy bitches? Was there, like, a specific thing that they were kind of... I think it's a... I, I mean, because I've read Susan Faludi, I think it's a backlash from women actually getting a few steps forward. Jen, put you back in your place. You can't, yeah. can't be a career woman. You can't have stuff that you think you can have and not have some sort of repercussion or consequences or turn into bitches be crazy. Also... On another similarly cynical, but or as cynical but different note, Fatal Attraction made a shitload of money, so they yes. just wanted to keep remaking Fatal Attraction. Essentially, right. Whose turn is it next? Tis I next week, and I have chosen Waiting for Guffman, which I'm very excited about. Although I have always pronounced it Waiting for Guffman, just because it's funny. <laughs> okay, we're going to watch Waiting for Guffman. Standard issue for all women.